I'm going to read Luke chapter 1, verses 30 to 35. Hear now God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. And the angel said to her, to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, Well, how will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Let's pray together. Father, the Spirit of God makes the reading, especially the preaching of the Word, an effective an effectual means of salvation, an effectual means of working sanctification in us, of teaching us of the truth that is in Jesus. And so, Father, we pray that your Spirit would do just that. We believe in the work of the Holy Spirit in our own lives, in the lives of those who gave us your word, and even in the work of preaching. Work powerfully through these things for your glory's sake. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In the early 20th century, so like the early 1900s, liberal theology was on the rise in the mainline denominations within the United States, but also the world. And in order to protect against the dangers of liberalism, the mainline Presbyterian denomination, that was the PCUSA, they voted to require all men who were seeking ordination as pastors within the denomination to affirm certain fundamentals of our faith, certain core doctrines that they believe to be bedrock, bedrocks of what we believe. These were specific fundamentals that were under attack from liberal theology. And those five fundamentals, they said, were, first of all, the inerrancy of Scripture as God's Word, the without error, that it was breathed out by God. Secondly, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Third, the authenticity, the, the truthfulness of Jesus' miracles. Fourth, substitutionary atonement, meaning that Jesus, when he went to the cross, he went to the cross to die in place of his people as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, divine wrath because of our sins. And fifth, the belief in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And uh, the General Assembly voted three times over the span of about 10 years to affirm this uh, in 1910, 1916, 1923. But what, just one year later, in 1924, liberalism won the day. There was a document that was produced called the Auburn Affirmation, with the express, written with the express purpose 
It was to be an affirmation designed to safeguard the unity and the liberty of the PCUSA. And of other things that it said in this document, it, one of them was that these five fundamentals were not required uh, to be affirmed by men seeking ordination, but the alternate theories were to be permitted. And this document was circulated among the liberal and moderate pastors within the denomination, and ultimately that thinking won the day in the spirit of unity and liberty, and the results for the church have been disastrous. Now, the question that we need to ask is, is the virgin birth something that is truly essential to our faith? Is it something that we must really believe? If you were to make a list of the five essential beliefs of the Christian faith, would you put the virgin birth in that list? thing about it is, is that I think where we sit here in our culture, the, the fruit of liberalism has spread from generation to generation down to us to the point where the church today finds very little that is essential. There is a, a famous saying that is attributed to Augustine, probably wasn't Augustine that actually said it, the, the saying says that in essentials, the church ought to have unity in non-essentials, there is liberty, and in all things, there is charity. And I think every Bible-believing, every Christ-loving believer would agree to that. The, the, the issue is, where do we draw a line between essential and non-essential? Um, probably a lot of people would say, well, we ought to believe in Jesus, and we ought to uh, believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those are the essentials. Everything else is non-essential. It's up for debate. But even if you scratch below the surface of those words, Jesus, the gospel, what those words mean to differing people uh, could be widely varying opinions to the point where those words become like jello on, in, in a hot Texas sun. It's just formless and void and almost meaningless. Because, beloved, doctrine is important. What we believe is important. We have a faith that is grounded in the truth. And truth is important. Jesus said the truth will set you free. He came to bear witness to the truth that God sent him to proclaim what is true. And so, and Jesus said, thy word the word of God is what is true. And so from one standpoint, the virgin birth is essential for us because it's part of God's word. It's what God declares. And we must accept and receive and believe this truth. But I think we can go even farther when it comes to the, 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 the truth of the virgin birth. The virgin birth is actually an issue of our salvation. The Spirit of God worked the virgin birth, the, the conception of the Son of God in the womb of the Virgin Mary so that he could be our Savior. Apart from the Spirit's work, he would not be our perfect Savior. And that's what we need to hear today as we consider this familiar passage is that 
God's promised salvation in Jesus Christ is only ours because of the Spirit-worked birth. God's promised salvation is only ours because of the Spirit-worked birth. So before we get into that, it's important for us to talk a little bit about the person of the Holy Spirit. I think of all three members of the triune Godhead, the, the Spirit is the one that we can safely say we know the least about or we're least familiar with. He's been described by some as the shy member of the Trinity. The, the Spirit is the one who has empowered the prophets and the apostles to give us God's word, but the, the Spirit's testimony is primarily about the Father and about the Son and very little about himself. Um, although we do know enough, we know that the Spirit is an eternal member of the Godhead. He is a person. He is not an impersonal force. We speak of the power of the Holy Spirit, but it is the person of the Holy Spirit that gives us that power. Jesus referred to him. He said that when he comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He is the helper. He is a person. Um, and, and his role within the Godhead seems to be one of affecting and consummating the Father's plans. The Father plans and ordains, the Son works it, and it is brought into effect and consummated by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the creative power of God, but he is also the powerful presence of God. And we can see his creative power in, even in the work of creation. I don't know if you've noticed this, but if you look at the creation account and what Scripture says about creation, all three members of, of the Godhead are involved in creation. It was the Father's eternal plan to create all things out of nothing. Hebrews says that God created all things by the work of the Son, but even in creation in Genesis, we see the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. The Spirit is the one who brings that creation account. And so it is with all of God's works. They are working in perfect unison and perfect harmony. And he is the powerful presence of God. Where the, where the Spirit is, God is. And when the Spirit of God comes, he comes with power. And he's seen as indwelling people. When the Spirit came upon the prophets, they were able to speak powerfully on behalf of God. They were God's mouthpieces. Um, when, when the Spirit comes, he's empowering them, the, the people, for the, whatever ministry he has set them apart. Samson receives the power of the Spirit. The Spirit comes upon him, and he has a ministry of destruction, of destroying the, the Philistines with his strength. The Apostle Paul receives the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim the, the mysteries of Christ to us. And so every, God creates his plans, and all of his plans come to fruition. He he determines his plans, he works his plans, and he brings those plans into, uh, to, to bear by the Spirit. And so when we read in Galatians chapter 4 that God chose to send forth his Son, we ought to expect immediately that both the, the Spirit 
and the son would be involved in this work, that his son would be willingly coming, as we saw in Philippians 2, but also that the Spirit would be bringing it to bear. And that's exactly what the angel says in our passage. Mary says, how, how will this be that I will have this child? And the angel, verse 35, says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And so as we consider this, I want, I want us to think about what, what this virgin birth from two standpoints. The first is that the Spirit worked Christ's spiritual birth so that he would be our perfect Savior. And the second as a way of application, is that the Spirit works our spiritual birth so that we might have this salvation in Jesus Christ. This, the birth of the Spirit in Jesus Christ was so that we could receive spiritual birth in Jesus Christ. So let's first look at this birth of Jesus Christ and how the spiritual birth, the birth of the Spirit, is makes him the perfect Savior. We'll see it in three ways. The first, by the Spirit... God's dwelling place is with man. So as we read through the pages of Scripture, we, if, we were, if you, somebody was to ask you, what is, the, what is the problem that is our problem in our existence today? And we might immediately answer, well, sin is our problem. And, and we're, that's correct. But sin is, sin is the cause of of our true problem. Our true problem is that we have separation with God. We were created for perfect fellowship and unity and communion with God. From the very beginning in the garden, Adam and Eve had blessed unity. And if we look at the last pages of Scripture and Revelation, we, once again, you know, the, the, church, the, the bride is coming down and with a new Jerusalem and, and God's dwelling places with, with man. And our unhappy situation between Genesis and Revelation is that we are separated from the God for whom we were created. We, we ought to be enjoying him, and living in fellowship with him. And yet our sin has made us, has separated us from God. Our sin has, it's a, it's a war that we've initiated, that we've been fighting, that we cannot win against the Almighty God, and it's a war that's kept us as separate as enemies. And yet God in his grace has said from covenant to covenant, I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will be with you. And those, those promises were shadowed in the Old Testament. We, we saw the temple and the tabernacle and and. and Glimpses of it, but those things find fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. The, the Holy Spirit comes upon the Virgin Mary, and this child is the Son of God. His name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory. Glory is of the one and only. And so, in, 
by the work of the Spirit. God and man can dwell together. But not just with us, beloved, but in us. Because the Spirit works this birth so that this child is human and deity. He is, he is fully God and fully man. He is two persons in, or two natures in one person forever. It is perfect unity of God and man. It is a ultimate fulfillment of God's purpose. His, his body was the temple of the Holy Spirit. As he told the people, he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And he was talking about his body. So by the work of the Spirit, God's presence, his powerful presence, is with man. And secondly, because when the Spirit comes, power comes, because he was born of the Spirit, he was powerful in the Spirit. He was, this, by the work of the Spirit, he was fully and perfectly equipped to be our Savior, to perform the work of salvation. He was the Messiah. Now, Messiah is our translation of a word to mean anointed one, one who is anointed by the Spirit for service. And we know by reading the Old Testament that those who were anointed were prophets, priests, and kings. They were anointed by the Spirit to carry out a work of mediating between God and man, to serving as, uh, that, in that service. And as the Messiah, anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit in full measure, Jesus is all three of those things. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses said, After me is coming one, a prophet, who is one of your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the Word became flesh. He came not declaring his own message, but he came to declare all that the Father came to say. Hebrews said that long ago, in many ways, God spoke to us by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. He is the image of the invisible God and the exact representation of his being. He is the perfect prophet. Secondly, the, sa the Savior, the Messiah, must be a priest. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, as the Lord rejected Eli, the priest, he said to Eli, I am raising up a faithful high priest who will be over my house forever. But a priest must be holy, and a priest must be one of the people. He must be selected from the people, and so the Spirit works to bring about a holy child, a holy human child, one like made like us in every way, and yet without sin. He is to be called holy because it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that he would be set apart. Not a priest who must be clothed with 
cleansed garments washed with water or purified with sacrifices, but one who is holy in and of himself, who himself is the cleansing garments, who himself is, and his blood is the blood that will cleanse, in himself is the sacrifice that will reconcile us to God. He is the perfect priest by the power of the Spirit. And thirdly, he is the king. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord told King David, he said, I will raise up for you a son. I will build you a house, a dynasty, and you will have a son sitting on your throne, my throne, forever and ever. His kingdom shall have no end. So the Spirit came upon a woman betrothed to Joseph, of the line of David, who is both son of God and son of man. He is the son of David. And as the angel says, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. He is the perfect king. So the spirit has worked in Jesus by his holiness, by his power, making him perfectly equipped for this calling. And as a result, he is the perfect son. He's the perfect son. He will be called the son of God, the angel said, but he is also the son of Mary, fully man and fully God. He is also the son of David and the son of Abraham. We, we have these genealogies in both Matthew and Luke. Luke traces the analogy all the way back to Adam, whom he calls the Son of God, the very first man. And here the angel says he will be man and the Son of God. Matthew traces the genealogy back to Abraham. Abraham to whom God gave his covenant promises. Abraham to whom... Uh, The Apostle Paul says that all those promises were through his seed, through his son, even the son of Abraham, even Jesus Christ. He is the perfect son who was sent by the Father to bring many sons to glory. And, beloved, God works all these wonderful things in the fullness of time by the power of his Spirit to make Jesus the only means for salvation, the perfect Savior. But remarkably, this prophet who came from the Father, this perfect Son, he says that for us to have any share in his kingdom, we must be born of the Spirit. We must be born of the Spirit. As Jesus is our Savior, we have to remember that part of his work of salvation is that of the forerunner or the first fruits. He is the one who's pioneering the way to glory, and his spiritual birth is, a, is the first to bring about our spiritual birth in himself. In John chapter 3, that's the passage where Jesus is meeting with the Pharisee Nicodemus. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see 
the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And of course, Nicodemus is confused. How can somebody be born again? And he says, you must be born of water and the spirit. It is the spirit that brings birth just as it brought birth to Jesus. We call that work regeneration, regeneration, born again. And that is a work of God's sovereign spirit, powerfully working in the life, lives of those who are dead to give them life. That regeneration gives them faith to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and repentance to repent of their sins, clinging to the hope of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And just as you didn't control your birth, you didn't choose the day of your birth, so also the Spirit moves the way the Spirit will, giving life to whom he will. And when we look at Jesus, we can see as God worked in Jesus, so he works in us in our spiritual birth. The Spirit was given to the, um, the church at Pentecost as spoils of the victories of our Savior Jesus Christ. He said, I will, in his final prayer, he said, I will ask the Father and he will give to you the Spirit. And in Acts chapter 2, that's exactly what happened. The Spirit came upon the church and they were filled with power, power to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what the Apostle Peter said as when the people cried out, what shall we do? We just crucified the Lord of glory. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, repent of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. It was through the preaching of the word that the Spirit worked to grant that new birth that they had the faith and the repentance to cling to Christ and that was, they received the, the Holy Spirit. And so by the Holy Spirit, by that same Spirit, in a spiritual birth in us, beloved, that is how we receive the benefits of Jesus Christ. Well, let's consider the same three ways that Jesus uh, was our perfect Savior. First, by the Spirit, we are united to Jesus. The Spirit comes to us. The Spirit get, works in our hearts and our minds. And the Spirit comes to dwell with us by his powerful presence. And Scripture declares that we are now in Christ and Christ is in us. We now have fellowship with him in a unique way so that we can receive what has been given to us. This child was called holy because it was the work of the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit comes upon us and we receive Christ by faith, we are made holy in Christ Jesus. We are set apart. He is a, uh, he has, will dwell with us forever and ever. Jesus has made these wonderful promises. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Lo, I am with you always. And as we said in Revelation, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Those things begin when the Spirit works spiritual birth within us. Secondly, having been born of the Spirit, we are equipped for service. Jesus was equipped to be our Savior, our prophet, priest, and king. 
And so, beloved, are we. We're given gifts for service. We're given the fruit of the, the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are things that the Apostle Paul lists out as fruit of the Spirit. What are those things? Those are, it's Christ-likeness. That is conforming us to the image of the Holy One who came to be with us, the one who came to save us. And just as Jesus was the perfect prophet, priest, and king, so by that Spirit, he gives us the right to be prophets, priests, and kings. A prophet is somebody who speaks on behalf of God, and God has given us his word, and he gives us by his Spirit the right and the responsibility to share God's word, to speak God's word, to read and understand and explain God's word, to preach the manifold mysteries of God. We are made prophets in Christ by the Spirit. We, we, we are made priests as well. We don't offer up bloody sacrifices, but we offer up sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving and good works the writer of Hebrews says. We pray for one another. We intercede. We have the right to approach the throne of grace with confidence. We have the ability to teach and instruct one another in God's word. And we are made kings. We are a royal priesthood, the apostle Peter says. If we endure, we will reign with the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We were given a mandate to rule over God's creation. We will reign with him in Christ Jesus. And all that is ours, beloved, because by the work of the Spirit, we are truly children of God. Just as the Spirit enabled Jesus to be the Son of God, so we are truly sons of God. And that's not a sexist statement to say that we are sons of God. That's the language of Scripture. In biblical times, sons were the ones who received the inheritance. And there is now, therefore, neither male nor female with respect to the reception of the gospel. But we are all sons in that we all have the gift to share of the inheritance that is ours. And what is that inheritance, beloved? It is the inheritance that Jesus has earned. He said, he said of the Holy Spirit, he said, all that the Father has is mine. And he says, when the Spirit comes, he will give all that I have to you. Your, my inheritance is yours. The spoils of his victory are ours. Beloved, that is what the Spirit has done in Jesus, and that is what the Spirit does in us. Where the Spirit comes, there is power. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, 
do you, have you experienced this spiritual power in your life? Do you have union and fellowship with the Almighty God? Can you, in good conscience, grab hold of Christ as your Savior? Are you looking to him and his work as being sufficient for you? But having received that with faith and repentance, is your life any, any different? Has there been change? The Spirit doesn't leave us unaffected. Where the Spirit comes, there is powerful change. There is equipping for service. Are you serving with joy and gladness? Are you, are you putting to death those sins which have separated you from God? You now have that power to put them to death. It's not going to be perfect. I'm, I'm not saying that we serve perfectly, that we die to sins perfectly, that we experience the fruit of the Spirit perfectly like we want. But do you experience it at all? Do you, do you serve at all? Do, is there any joy? Is there any love? Can you with any amount of truthfulness cry out, Abba, Father? Because, beloved, if you can't do that, if you can't look at your life and see something different, it is right for you to question, has the Spirit been at work in your life? And the solution, beloved, is to receive the gift of Jesus Christ, who was born of the Spirit for you and for me. He is offered free of charge. He is offered with the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says, I will never turn you away. Come to me, and I will give you rest. I will give you all that the Father has. I freely give to you. But, beloved, if... If you can say that, if you are hoping in, in Christ, if you are serving, even in just a little bit, with that joy and gladness, if you experience any of that work of the Spirit in your life, rejoice, because that is supernatural. That is something that cannot be controlled. That is the sovereign work of God in you. And so rejoice, because you are truly a child of the living God, forever and ever. You, you are. Rejoice because you have God's powerful presence within you. Your body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. He, is, he has given you his powerful spirit and he, has, he is equipping you for service. He will work through you for his glory and for the benefit of us by his spirit. As each of us have received gifts, let us use them, the Apostle Paul says. Let us use them. His power is yours, his purity is yours, and his work, his ongoing work is yours. It is ours as a body of Christ. Let us use that gift and rejoice because you have an eternal inheritance. An eternal inheritance, Jesus said, Oh, little flock, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, the kingdom 
It is his presence. It is his blessedness. And it is his joy. And beloved, this is the Father's good plan. And out of his great love, he has sent his Son. And he has worked that by his Spirit for you and for me. Beloved, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Walk in the Spirit and rejoice in the glory of our God because he is faithful. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that all your promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for your Spirit that brings these promises to bear, that works them in us, even as they, you work them in Jesus Christ, even as that spirit who raised Jesus from the dead gives us new life in Jesus. Even the spirit that gave him birth gives us new birth. Oh, Lord, thank you that you do all that we need for salvation, that you love us so perfectly that when we are weak, you are strong and you are faithful to us. Help us to walk with joy and gladness and strength in that which you have given us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.